I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a Welcome to My Dilettante Life, where we hear from people who have cool or unusual jobs about their professional lives. I'm podcast host and resident dilettante, Hannah Binder. So welcome to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder, and today I get to talk with Lindsay Harrison, uh, one of my good friends, about her career in public diplomacy, working as part of the Foreign Service for the U.S. Department of State. So welcome, Lindsay. Thank you, Hannah. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you as well. I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time, both for the podcast and also, of course, personally. Uh, as I've mentioned in some of my previous episodes, some of these topics come out of areas of interest that I've had or dabbled in myself over the years. And definitely starting in high school, I was really interested in this glamorous idea of being a diplomat. So really uh, looking forward to kind of diving in and finding out about your personal experience, at least with the work. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background professionally, how you got into the field? Sure. Um... I originally got into the field right out of undergrad, right out of the University of Oregon. I was looking to go to law school and I had been accepted to a law school. I had a plan to go to it. And I remember talking to my university professors that were writing my recommendations. And they were, there was two in particular that were a little disappointed that I was going to law school. And they were just kind of, I think they saw I was going to law school because I didn't know what else I was going to do with my life as many undergraduates, you know, kind of find themselves in that situation. And I think one in particular recommended the State Department, and I had never really heard of the State Department. I knew we had embassies abroad, but um, I hadn't considered that as a potential uh, job or career. And so I applied for a State Department internship, and I uh, was lucky enough to go to Rome um, for about five or six months. And I did a State Department internship in Rome and kind of got to know what the State Department was. And um, then I followed that up with a DC internship with the State Department and realized that uh, this incredible career did exist. And that kind of just sparked my interest in the Foreign Service at large. And then uh, Eventually, I went into uh, diplomatic security, which is the international security arm of the State Department, and I was in uh, DS, as they call it, for about 10 years, and then joined the Foreign Service after that. So I had a brief private sector stint for about four months and realized that wasn't for me, and that the State Department was a great place to work, uh, super dynamic people, really interesting jobs. And so I've been there since about... I started in, in 2006, and then um, I've been there since then. Very cool. Yeah, if I remember correctly, when you were in Rome doing your internship, you got to stay in a villa, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so I was a very poor college student, and so when able to, in order to be able to you know, afford to live in Rome with an unpaid internship, uh, I house sat and dog sat for a number of people. And uh, one of the um, 
consul generals was kind enough to allow me to just continue living in her, uh, you know, beautiful Italian villa on the top floor. So um, it's been downhill since then, housing wise, <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it was incredible. And, um, you know, because she was so generous, I was able to uh, be able to work for free for the U.S. government in Rome. Um, but yes. Very cool. I know I still regret that I never came to visit you while you were staying there because it did sound kind of incredible. And I think it might have been around the same time that that film Under the Tuscan Sun came out. And I know that Rome is not in Tuscany, but in my mind, you were basically living like Diane Lane's life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was pretty it was pretty surreal. Like when I when I sat up in bed, I could see the sunrise over St. Peter's Basilica out my window and then it was also kind of around the time of the da vinci code and angels and demons and so it had a very romantic you know also conspiratorial vibe in my mind but it it was it was 100% magical and I yes I would have loved to have had you visit well I won't ask you about the illuminati uh, during this interview (laughs) but um... So did you, or do you now have a role model who, you know, inspires you with how you create your career in the foreign service or who you try to maybe emulate? Sure. Um, I think I have a lot of role models. Um, there was two women in particular, Leah Peace and Auden uh, Francis McCarran, who really helped me when I was an intern, kind of, I mean, not only did they pay for my lunches and kind of hold my hand and um, teach me about the State Department, but then they really encouraged me to keep applying and um, kind of supported me in that way. And then once I got in, I've had a number of bosses that have been mentors and um, people who I've looked to as leaders and um, kind of tried to study how they manage people. Um, so the trickiest thing about leadership in the State Department is just the management of people you know, you're managing resources and enormous, you know, budgets and operations, but um, the hardest thing to get right is managing people. And so I've tried to really emulate um, a couple of my bosses recently and um, kind of try to study what they do well. So yes, I've had, I've had, um, I've been fortunate enough to have great, great bosses. And um, Yes, I, I guess they're my role models. You can also look to the kind of senior diplomats in the State Department um, who've been very successful. You know, some of the more famous names as, you know, uh, as role models, especially for female diplomats. Um, and yes, I'm happy to share some of those names, but generally um, there are people that have helped me along the way. Well, and I would imagine, I mean, I know you've had obviously a pretty significant tenure with the State Department overall, and you are a very like thoughtful, conscientious, intelligent person. So I would imagine that the opportunity has also since come up for you to then mentor other people or maybe even have sort of peer mentorship um, relationships. So what does that look like with you kind of passing on your learned experience? Sure. Um... So for example, my last mentor in Vietnam, Melissa Bishop, she, she was consular coned. I'm also consular coned. Um, and she kind of helped steer me in certain directions towards certain um, jobs or tasks that I think helped me career-wise. And then 
I'm now considered a mid-level officer. So when new officers come in at the entry level, I do try and, um, you know, I, I, I'm often in the position where I am training the new persons. So um, you do get a pass on that knowledge and often you're training them in very technical immigration law um, and logistics and things like that. Um, and it's important that you get it right or else, you know, there's, there's um, serious consequences, especially when it comes to American citizen services or special citizen services where you're dealing with very sensitive situations, um, you know, life and death of Americans abroad, um, very sensitive situations involving rape or, you know, massive crashes or um, detainment of U.S. citizens, arrest, things like that. So, um, yeah, I, we're, I'm now in a position where I can, I can mentor those entry-level officers as well. Well, and you mentioned that a lot of your mentors and the people who you look up to, to, you know, as, as role models are women. I think if I remember correctly, currently the foreign service is roughly, what is it? 35% female. Is that correct? So it depends on, I'm not sure the overall statistics. Um, they often break down the statistics based on grade. So mm -hmm. your entry-level, mid-level, senior-level um, and around the entry level, it's almost 50-50, but then the attrition of women in the foreign service is um, higher than men. So you get to the senior levels, and then that's where the number, numbers really dwindle. Um, so I know, uh, you know, since the George Floyd incident, um, diversity and inclusion has been a huge part of the State Department now. A lot of boards, resources, committees are dedicated to um, reducing the attrition of women and minorities in the foreign service. So I would imagine given, you know, kind of that, um, so the history of, of the foreign service is being overwhelmingly male and, and some of that attrition you're talking about, it's probably really helpful to have some of those people who maybe have some more experience who can share what they've learned over the years, but also just to kind of have some, um, opportunities for moral support or to have sounding boards from other women to kind of make sure that you are understanding what's going on correctly or that you can validate your experiences? Would you say that you get that? I, I do. I definitely do. I think, um, you know, mentorship happens organically. I think the best way, I think there's, there's always mentorship programs that assign you someone, but it's really those mentors that you seek out and you have good relationships with over time that really are the ones that um, help you throughout your career. Um, I also have had a number of um, men who've come forward and just said, you know, I, I am here to help you in any way. Um, I had one in Sao Paulo uh, named Greg Simkis, who was um, a great mentor and, um, you know, having those male mentors also um, is very helpful, but yes, it's, it's nice to have, uh, female leaders you can look up to and kind of emulate along the way. Definitely. So what has surprised you about working in diplomacy? Um, I think what continues to surprise me, um, working abroad is just the level, um, of desire to come to the United States. Um, you know, the U.S., um, you know, we have a lot of different things going on politically, socially, culturally, 
um, they can be hard at times. Um, but what continues to surprise me is that um, tourists, students, just people all over the world um, just are, are dying to come to the United States, visit the United States, um, whether it's to go to Disneyland or Nashville or come here for college or to do scientific research or to go shopping in New York City. There's just such a, a pull um, to the United States that I wasn't quite expecting. And yes, there's a lot of opposition to United States policy or, you know, incidents or, you know, what have you, but there's, um, the United States continues to attract people from around the world. Um, and I do want to say the views, these views are my own and do not represent the U.S. State Department, just as a disclaimer. Yes, always, always good to clarify that. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder, and today I'm talking with diplomat Lindsay Harrison. Yeah, it's interesting to hear. I mean, we typically in the U.S., I think, think of the American dream as something that we as Americans have and maybe don't think about it so often as something as like a global phenomenon that the American dream is such an appealing one for people outside our borders as well. It is. And you can go to, you know, remote parts of the Amazon or, you know, the fields of Vietnam and people will say, you know, like Walt Disney or, you know, throw out like Henry Ford or they'll just, you know, have, you know, that that thought of what America is or, you know, or it's also a place where, you know, you can come and you can live freely um, and you can practice whatever religion you want and you can, you know, type your opinions about the U.S. government online and no one's going to arrest you. And so it, it is kind of a, I mean, it's a cliche, but kind of that like beacon of freedom for a lot of people around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good reminder that uh, to not take some of those freedoms for granted, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Now, what are some of the misconceptions you find that people have about your job? Um, there's a lot of misconceptions. Uh, I think, I mean, there's different levels. So I think a lot of people have seen a lot of bad movies um, where someone's like running to the U.S. Embassy gates and, you know, a Black Hawk helicopter comes and like saves them. Or um, I think there's a lot of just misconceptions about what the State Department is and what we do abroad and what we're able to do legally. Um, when you work with American Citizen Services where you're helping Americans in distress, you often see this when they're asking for you know, their daughter's stuck in a hostel in Peru and, the, you know, her passport is seized and why can't the U.S. get a helicopter in there now kind of thing where um, just the expectation versus reality of our services abroad. Another thing is just um, people don't know who we are, what we do. So, you know, I'm from Montana and, you know, I'm getting my hair cut in Montana last week and, um, you know, the hairdresser asked me what I do and I say I work for the foreign service and it's just it's just constantly just a blank stare of non-recognition um they often say oh my my brother works for the forest service as well um (laughs) and so it's just a constant or you know I work for the state department oh well which state the state of Montana Mm -hmm. state of Idaho you know just there's just not a lot of um public knowledge about what we do uh abroad so um, there's a lot of kind of unknowns. I think people realize we have U.S. embassies abroad. 
they probably don't know what we do. Um, but, you know, I think we could do a better job of explaining ourselves, but there's also some um, legal, barrier, legal barriers to that as well. Sure. I will just say personally, um, as a high schooler, when I was thinking about, you know, this glamorous life of being a diplomat, I definitely had some pretty big misconceptions about like, oh, I'd get in and immediately be given the task of negotiating some high level treaty or, you know, uh, calming international incidents day after day. Like I, I feel like, you know, anyone who knows large government agencies probably recognizes that the chances of one person doing all of those things are pretty slim. Uh, but I definitely had this very like high paced kind of, um, I never saw 24, but I think of it as like a 24 style life mm -hmm. of like high stress, really important life or death situations that I, you know, that all depend on me doing my job incredibly competently. And while I want to have competent people in the foreign service, I assume that you are not Kiefer Sutherland day after day. <laughs> right. Uh, I've never seen 24, but, um, so on one hand, there are those like very glamorous aspects, but when it comes to like negotiating nuclear accords or a NATO accession or a uh, peace in Ukraine, there are thousands of people involved and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of work hours put into a single meeting um, where a high level senior diplomat is then at the negotiating table. Um, so yes, there's the nuts and bolts of being in the foreign service that are very not glamorous, like um, you could be schlepping luggage, you know, during a high level visit and your job is just to carry the bags and watch the bags in a room for days on end. Or you could be having uh, a lunch meeting at the Ritz, you know, about, you know, what have you. Uh, so it, it does vary widely the jobs and um, the functions that the State Department does. So based on all of that, what, what do you wish that people knew about your job? Let's see. Um, I think I just wish they knew what uh, the State Department does functionally. Um, I wish they knew um, kind of what foreign policy objectives we were fulfilling or um, whether it be from pushing, you know, for peace in Ukraine to advancing health initiatives in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, to, you know, promoting uh, freedom of speech in, you know, whatever country. Um, and then just kind of understood how that relates to their own lives and also um, kind of what, what is available for Americans abroad should they need it. Um, and, uh, kind of how the state department works to promote us interests, um, whether that be through trade or economic partnerships, um, uh, study abroad connections, cultural exchanges, things like that. So I think I just wish people knew more about what the state department does and what the foreign service does at large, um, just generally. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe like the role of diplomacy versus like military power or something like that. Exactly. It's, 
you know, it's um, soft power versus hard power. And you ideally are using as much soft power as you can to avoid using hard power military assets. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it's a it's an important step to avoiding conflict in many places. Um, so through negotiation and dialogue and um, through trying to resolve conflicts and issues without the use of force, because mm-hmm. words very, war is very costly. And so diplomacy is a much cheaper alternative to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got it. Now, I know we've, you've, you've mentioned a couple of the, you know, tasks that you may have to do in your, in your role, but can you tell me what are some of the coolest things that you've done in your job and also maybe some of the most tedious or yeah, like awful <laughs> for lack of a better word? Uh, so sometimes the coolest and the most awful can be the same thing. Um, so you know, I, I think I think some of the coolest parts of the job have been, um, you know, when a high level visitor is coming to whatever country you're living in to advance, you know, X, Y, and Z initiative, just being able to be in the room with like the prime minister and that visitor to, you know, take notes or to assist the, the VIP in, in whatever uh, meeting or negotiation is happening. So that's really cool. You just get um, a very kind of inside look into how foreign policy is made. Um, It's also really cool to be able to help Americans in need. So um, whether, you know, that's someone that's been arrested and you're visiting them in jail to try and explain to them the legal system of, you know, in Brazil, you know, what the next steps are, how how they can get an attorney, you're kind of the conduit between them and the family. Um, and oftentimes, uh, especially during COVID, the families can't come to the country where whatever incident has taken place. So you could have an American in a hospital bed and you're the only person they have to the outside world because they don't speak Vietnamese or you know they can't even communicate because of the state they're in. So you're kind of the linchpin between the family um, getting them the care they need with whatever hospital and trying to get them home. So, I mean, we do so many cool things abroad uh, that really help Americans, whether that's, you know, evacuations or just trying to get them out of jail. Um, so, so yeah, I think I, you know, I have, you have so many stories in the foreign service, um, but you know, those, those, those places where you're having a tangible impact on someone's life, usually it's, you know, the worst you know, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them, um, but you're really able to make a difference and kind of be um, the connection to the family. And, you know, sometimes you're like that consul officer is your only hope if you're in a Russian prison. So, um, you know, you really make a tangible impact on someone's life. This podcast is a work in progress, and that means I'm looking for feedback from you, my listeners. Tell me what you love, what you don't, and any new ideas you have. Maybe things I might not have considered yet. Many heads are better than one, and listener feedback is invaluable to an evolving project like my dilettante life. Well, and I will say just like personally, not not just Americans, but also like you were talking about so many people want to come to America. I'll just relate to you that my grandfather till the day he died, told the story of 
he and my grandmother and my father getting approved for their visas to come to the States. And like, it was one of the stories he loved telling, um, partly because it was, I think it was either the day before Thanksgiving or it was actually Thanksgiving day um, that they got their visa approval. And, you know, who knows if the officer who did the approval remembers or remembered, they're probably passed on by now, doing that, but it played such a major role in the lives of everyone in my dad's family. And, you know, again, to this day, like I still remember that story and the impact that it had on us as, as a family. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and it's, you know, that was maybe the first person American your grandfather ever came in contact with, um, which is often the case abroad and you're kind of the face to the rest of the world. And sometimes you're the only American they'll ever meet in their life. So, um, yeah, it's an important role. Well, that segues perfectly into my next question. Often I ask people what the biggest differences are between their, you know, pursuing their career as a job and doing it as a hobby. I don't really think of diplomacy as something you can do as a hobby. So my question for you is, um, what is the difference that you see between living in living abroad in the capacity of a foreign service officer versus just kind of being a general American expat? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question. You really have to think about what you're saying at all times. So you're kind of on 24 hours a day. So you are, you are a representative of the U.S. government at all times. So that needs to be reflected in your behavior, what you're communicating. Um, you know, you probably, you know, sometimes U.S. tourists behave great abroad. Sometimes they're on a bachelor party or, you know, sometimes they get in trouble. So you can't really, you can't really do that abroad uh, if you're working for the State Department, nor should you. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting question because you can't really do diplomacy as a hobby. You can certainly read about it, though. So I think... I think there's a difference about, you know, difference in, you know, reading all those books that are amazing about the history of diplomacy or tense negotiations or um, just, I mean, reading history is kind of just reading about diplomacy as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot of difference between being a tourist abroad and residing abroad permanently or temporarily with the U.S. Foreign Service, but I think just, um just you, you, you should always just think about how you're being um, perceived as a representative of, of the U.S. government. I mean, no, no pressure. You're, you're just um, there to convey what a country of over 300 million people is like <laughs> in one, one person's like, experience. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's not difficult. It's just like, don't screw up or don't, you know, just like. Um, you know, when I was working in Russia, they used to say, don't do anything that you don't want your mom reading about in a newspaper. Mm, so, okay. you know, it's not necessarily like a high pressure, you know, high stakes thing, but you know, it's just use make some good common choices sense. as they say. Yeah. Use common sense, make good choices. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now that you are kind of, you know, mid-level, um, as a foreign service officer, would you say that you see yourself as an expert? Uh, you know, I wouldn't 
call myself an expert because, um, I mean, one of the things I love about the job is it's constantly changing. So every two to three years you have a new job and you kind of start from scratch. So, you know, you're constantly having to learn new skills or a new language or a new country or how this new government is structured, um, how they conduct diplomacy or business or trade or, you know, what their health services look like. So you're constantly learning and you're kind of constantly feeling underwater. And then towards the end of your tour, you're hitting your stride and you're just feeling great. And then you switch out and then you go somewhere else. So um, I think because of that, there's not a, you know, I, I, I don't feel like an expert um, until about two years in. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of like not feeling like I, you know, I think in my old job with diplomatic security, it was an incredible job, but you get to a point where you're like, I can, I can do this in my sleep a little bit. Um, and then it could just, you know, doesn't become as exciting. So, um, yeah, I'm, you know, not because of imposter syndrome, but just because of the nature of the job, I, I, I would not consider myself an expert because you're always learning something new. Although I bet you're an expert at packing and moving by this point. Oh, let me tell you, as I look at the suitcases <laughs> all over my floor. Yeah, no, I'm real good at packing. I'm real good at living out of suitcases as, you know, are my family members. And yeah, it's strange. Um, and I'm sure this will get old one day, but so far so good. People say it's the worst part of the job is the constant moving and you're just... You know, we, we've we've lived in 10 different places since we got back in the United States. So, um, yeah. So what would you tell someone who wants to go into diplomacy now? Um, I would highly encourage it. It's an incredible career. Um, it's not for everyone, but if you, if you like other cultures, languages, um, if you like to travel, um, I think this is the most exciting career you can get. Um, you know, they, there's always those cliches when you're in college, like do what you love or, you know, those, those silly things. And then, um, and you know, I'm thinking, well, I like to travel. And, and then there's not a lot of careers out there that, will let you do that all the time, but the foreign service is one of them. And um, yeah, I, I'd highly encourage it. I, I, it's also free to take the test. So you can take the US foreign service exam. There's a written and an oral part of the exam and it's open to all US citizens and it's free. So you can take it as many times as you'd like, I think once a year. And yeah, it's an exciting career. It has a lot of challenges, but a lot of rewards. And um, yeah, I, I, I love it. Um, I don't think it gets any better for adventure lifestyle. Um, and you can make a difference in people's lives. That sounds great. So what would you be doing if you weren't in diplomacy? Uh, I'd probably be a depressed lawyer somewhere. Um, but, Thank goodness for those college professors. Yeah, I know, who kind of like frowned when I said that was what I was doing and I could feel the judgment. Um, and I, I was doing it for the wrong reasons, but um, yeah, I, I'd probably be just doing law somewhere. Um, but in my dreams, as you know, Hannah, I would be an international art theft investigator. And yeah. I, did meet, I did meet someone who had that job um at Interpol many years ago 
and there was one of those jobs in the world uh, that I could identify. So um, yeah, probably not a large market for that kind of stuff, but uh, yeah, in my dreams, I'd be doing something very romantic like that. Um, otherwise, I don't have a lot of backup. It's like art theft investigator, diplomat, lawyer, and then waiting tables. Which is like I my, mean, my range. <laughs> that's a pretty, that's a pretty broad range. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm picturing basically you, there was that Catherine Zeta-Jones film was it where she was like with sean connery maybe she's a an art theft investigator so i'm I'm picturing you like navigating you know um sophisticated alarm systems to identify the weaknesses or work yeah working with interpol very like oceans 11 style so i think you could definitely you could rock that career i think (laughs) so like going into like european mansions Mm-hmm. of you know people who've stolen things on you know from whatever museum or from whatever nazi like cave and returning them to their rightful owners yes okay yes. twilight career identified we've got okay you. check <laughs> so my last question is what would you like to be asked about your career as a diplomat uh I think I'd like to be asked just again, what we do in general. Um, and then kind of, um, I'd also just like people to ask about, uh, or t- I should say to know about um, just the thousands of people that work around the world on their behalf. It is a career of service. Um, you know, I think people think of the military very uh, obviously as you know a career of service but the foreign service is one of service you're often living in very dangerous places around the world away from family members um a lot of people get very sick um it's it's not you know it's not all glamorous uh you know there's there's some very uncomfortable places uh, where you can live and people do it voluntarily and willingly and they raise their hands to go go and do that kind of work. Um, you know, uh, I think about, you know, those consular officers as well as the military people that, you know, helped with the Afghan evacuation and they're on the ground at the airport. Um, and you have instances like that throughout history all over the world. So um, yeah, it's a it can be dangerous. It can be fun. It can be glamorous. It can be a slog. Um, it's super multifaceted. And yeah, I think I just wish people knew about um, the kind of work that we did, that we do. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, I will say thank you for your service um, oh, on behalf nice. of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't fishing for that. but uh. No, no, but it is, it is good to realize, like you were talking about kind of the soft power versus hard power and the importance of diplomacy in not only furthering the United States goals around the world, but also hopefully avoiding some of the, you know, the conflicts that we see going on today. Maybe not all of them can be avoided, but um, it's good to know that you and your colleagues are out there doing your best to ensure that we, you know, have as few of those conflicts as possible. Thanks. I think you put into better words than I do. Yes. Good highlight on the soft power. 
<laughs> um, yeah, and, and my disclaimer, of course, is that I am currently in the process to potentially join the Foreign Service if they'll have me. So uh, all of this has been, uh, again, just personally interesting and hopefully maybe professionally relevant. We'll see. Um, but I do want to thank you so much, Lindsay, for taking the time to talk with me today. And I hope uh, that our listeners, if they have any follow-up questions, will reach out. We may at some point in the future follow up with you for an audience asks segment um, if anyone does have sort of uh, additional questions about your career. Absolutely. And always a joy talking to you. And the Foreign Service would be lucky to have you, Hannah. When I grow up, I want to be a diplomat. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke, with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests, and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. 